Name News Podcast. This is Men of Integrity, a prophet's warning. Listen, you know, we have a new podcast out called That Pentecostal Podcast. Episodes are already available. So, Larry, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's happening over at TPP? Yeah, we saw a need for a devotional podcast in the Pentecostal realm. We saw a need just for a short, uplifting moment that we can give to people. And so we decided that we're going to do it. We're going to make one. We're going to put it out there. It's going to include us. It's going to include our new members of the team. It's going to have Derek. It's going to have me. It's going to have Adrian. It's going to have some other people. We're going to have guests. And we're going to bring to you life-applicable, faith-building, Holy Ghost fire devotionals every single Monday. That Pentecostal podcast is available everywhere you get your podcast. So go set it to download, set it to notify you, whatever you need to do. But don't miss That Pentecostal podcast every Monday. So welcome back to the Jesus Enemies podcast. So this is Derek. I got Larry here with me. And we're looking at men of integrity. And I know that, you know, you're wondering, that's pretty broad, right? But what we're doing in this episode and throughout this series is we're going to, have to be taking a look at Daniel uh, and Radchat, Meshach, Abednego and walking through the book of Daniel. But on this specific episode, I'm going to be looking at the fall of Jerusalem, mainly through the eyes of Jeremiah, because, you know, we always like to do a lot of historical stuff before we get into a book. But this is one of those rare moments in the Bible where the history is in the Bible. Uh, and I don't mean that as a as a knock against the Bible. I just mean there's really good history in the book of Jeremiah that details a lot of what happened in Jerusalem and in Judah. Um, yeah. But well, I mean, and if you think about it, we've spent, we spent like a m- month and a half talking about, you know, moral virtues with no history at all. Yeah. So <laughs> we were due. <laughs> we were due. We, we, we're due for a, for a good bout of history. Cause I mean, before that we did the, the parables of Jesus. So we, here we are, season three, episode 16, right? Yeah. This is the first historical anything we've done. Well, I, we did talk about the Pharisees. A I mean, we, yeah. There's a little bit of history, but I mean, even then it was mostly the parables. It was talking about those stories that, yeah. you know. I got, so. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I kid, I kid. But yeah, so. It's interesting. You know. Jeremiah really, we want to use it to lead us into the book of Daniel. So in the Christian faith, obviously, the book of Daniel is considered to be one of the most important prophetic books throughout the Bible, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, apocalyptic literature. Uh, There's tons of insight, tons of predictions about what's going to come in the end. But to fully understand the message of the book of Daniel, We need to first look at the events that led to the Jews being taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So this is obviously a significant moment for the Jews, and it's one that's obviously had a profound impact upon the people of Israel and honestly throughout the rest of time. So to explore 
a little bit more, we'll be looking at the events leading up to Babylonian uh, captivity through the eyes of Jeremiah. But who is Jeremiah and Kate? I know that most of you are probably Bible scholars out there, but just for the person that's listening that doesn't know, Jeremiah is a prophet that lived during the time slightly before the the captivivity and you know he's contemporary with Ezekiel not contemporary with Daniel necessarily but Jeremiah is the pivotal figure not only for this period of history but also for Christian prophecy and his prophecies give us some valuable insight into the inner workings of what was happening in Judah uh, before the fall of Jerusalem and as well as gives us some messianic prophecy, right? So when we begin to look at the history behind this book, obviously the most notable figure that comes to mind is who? I mean, there's only really one king at this time that matters, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. Yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, who ruled from about 605 BC to 562 BC. He's mainly known for a lot of his military conquest and architectural developments and achievements. And obviously, he makes some grand appearance in uh, the book of Daniel. But he was. Okay, real quick. Does that time frame match the exile? Yeah. Okay, I just, just you know, I know dates can get weird with some of this and like everything matching up with what we tend to think. And so I just figured we'd verify that matches yeah, no. up. So I'm going to get to it, but the, the most scholars point to 586 BC is the fall of Jerusalem and like the full captivity of uh, Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. well within that range. So Nebuchadnezzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar who had overthrown the Assyrian Empire and established Babylon as the dominant power in the region. So when Nebuchadnezzar dies in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar becomes the king and immediately begins expanding the Babylonian Empire. So he leads these campaigns against Egypt, Assyria, uh, Judah, Tyre, and by the end of his reign, he's pretty well established Babylon as the most powerful city-state in the ancient Near East. So Nebuchadnezzar obviously kind of had this conscious uh, expansionist ideology and policy. So to this day, he's still considered one of the most successful military commanders. And he constructed one of these seven wonders of the world, which I know most people probably know, but they forget. But he constructed it for his queen. It's the Hanging Gardens. Oh, I always thought that was just for plus two food in every city or plus happiness, depending on which version of civilization we're playing. Well, I, I always play with Nebuchadnezzar, which is, I know is like, <laughs> like it's either Julius Caesar or Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, hey, one of those. As long as Gandhi isn't facing you, man, because when Gandhi's Gandhi tough. gets too happy, he becomes evil. Yeah, Gandhi's tough. Gandhi's tough. To explain that for anybody who doesn't know, there's a slider of like moral and evil for the leaders of the other nation states in this game. And in one, one of the versions of it, the slider got broken where if it went above or below the limits, it flipped to the other side. So if Gandhi got too peaceful, all of a sudden he just declared war on the whole world in this game. Yeah. Nuclear war everywhere. Yeah. It was crazy. 
Definitely not Gandhi-esque at all. But anyway, back to Nebuchadnezzar. So by 586... Yeah. By 587 BC, Judah is obviously in the sights of Nebuchadnezzar. But here's the thing with all this. We would assume that because of Nebuchadnezzar's position and conquering Judah, that the Jews would have a relatively unfavorable view of him, right? But when you look in the Bible, that's not really the case at all. Now, the the people at the time had an unfavorable view of Nebuchadnezzar, right? But that's not really the case when we look at Jeremiah and Daniel. He, in their eyes, was an instrument of God to punish the wickedness in the land. So the Talmudic and Midrash writings call him a little person. And as Nebuchadnezzar traveled through the cities and towns as a chief officer of the military under his father's rule, people would laugh at him and say, can a man like this reign over the entire world? Uh, you know, I think that we've heard enough history to know that short men can often do the most damage, right? So either way, Nebuchadnezzar at the time, Jehoiakim is uh, ruling over Judah, and uh, that's according to Second Kings 24. And he became a vassal king uh, for three years until he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, at which point the whole family of Jehoiakim goes to Nebuchadnezzar, they all get taken captive. So Nebuchadnezzar takes out all the gold. He begins an immigration of the noble, the rich, the wise, and the beautiful from Judah to Babylon. So the strong men and warriors were all taken to serve in Babylon. Second Kings 4, 24 and 14 tells us that none remained except the poorest people of the land. So after all this, Zedekiah is put in place of this va- as a vassal king by Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah is 21 years old, and he decided to be like his predecessor and rebel against the Chaldeans. Again, <laughs> an overwhelmingly dumb move to try rebelling against the strongest ruler and military power at that time, especially when your most trustworthy prophets are telling you, stop being an idiot, stop trying to rebel and submit. But the book of Jeremiah begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations, giving him this message of judgment and warning to the people of Israel who had turned away from God. So throughout the first 20 chapters of the book, you end up with Jeremiah delivering these messages of warnings to the people of Judah, calling them to repent, turn back to God. He speaks against false prophets who are misleading the people. Um, And despite all this, the people of Judah basically are like, nah, deuces, we're not listening. The book basically describes the political social climate of the time, uh, including the reign of a little bit of the reign of King Josiah, who had these righteous reforms. But as the Babylonian Empire begins to rise to power, Jeremiah warns that they would be the instrument of God's judgment against Judah. So he predicts the fall of Jerusalem and the captivity of the Jewish people in Babylon, urging the people to submit to the Babylonian rule as part of God's plan. Now, it, it's just interesting hearing like this, like that when God's judgment actually came, God sent a prophet telling them how to minimize the pain of that judgment. Yeah. And, and I mean, total opposite of everything you hear from uh, 
and I'm air quoting here just so anybody who can't see me, which is everybody understands, prophets in the modern church that yeah. proclaim this doom and gloom stuff that we sometimes hear. And it's just like, well, it's coming no matter what. And it's like, well, but that, that doesn't fit this. God yeah. told them it was coming, gave them decades and decades to prepare for it. And then when it came, gave them a prophet to tell them how to minimize the pain of it. And I mean, it's it's almost like apocalyptic literature playing out before your eyes. Well, yeah. Right? And I mean, if you really think about it, like this kind of thing is apocalyptic. It's just a localized apocalypse. Like everything that they knew yeah. before the fall of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Right. Yeah. When we're looking at King Zedekiah, so I just want you to read Jeremiah 21 verses 1 and 2 for us real quick because yeah, you're going to be shocked. All right. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Masaiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's, it's a little bit disingenuous in my opinion. You know, God has <laughs> repeatedly told you, even to this point, to stop resisting the Chaldeans. And you're like, yeah. hey, maybe you have another word from God. Like, Isn't that God how it is, goes, though? Like, yeah. you know, the preacher says something you don't like, and you're like, are you sure that's really what what the Bible says? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I am. Positive. Yeah, no, 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 positive. That's how it but works. Yet, the people who don't want to listen, they're just like, wait, but are you sure you're sure? It's like, it's almost like what you do with a toddler, but they think it's going to work with a well-reasoned adult where you're right. like, did you lie? Did you lie about lying? And that trips up my my four-year-old. Right. That's not going to trip up somebody who's earnestly studied and seasoned and understanding of what they're saying. Like, but yet people still try. But then, then we go on in Jeremiah 21, and I think you're going to not be shocked by this. So if you'll read Jeremiah 21, <laughs> verses 3 through 10. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterward, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and 
effects to the Chaldeans who besiege you. He shall live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So Jeremiah, not shockingly at all, repeatedly prophesies and warns the people and the, and the kings that destruction is coming and they must repent or they must defect. And finally... Does that mean Jeremiah, Daniel and the Hebrew boys are defectors? I mean... Potentially? I mean, we don't know... No, we, probably not, because... We can't know when in this process that they actually were taken, for sure. Well, they were definitely taken as part of the first, like... The first group? So it was before first this. Group. Yeah, because they were the nobles, they were the handsome True. young men, you know, yeah. Either way, he's always proclaiming this, but then finally Jeremiah records in his 25th chapter that because they refused to repent and listen to the words of the prophet of, of God that the Jews would serve Babylon for 70 years in Babylon. Then Jeremiah is told by God to go prophesy in the city. And the reaction of the priest and the other prophets and the people is shocking. I've, I know I've said that a lot, but like, I, I know I've read the book of Jeremiah, but I'm still like, what are they doing? Like, it, yeah, every time I've I've like had a Sunday school story on Jeremiah or we've talked we've had Jeremiah come up or even this, I'm just like, wait, Jeremiah says what? Well yeah, so, and so in Jeremiah twenty six, which we're not gonna read it, but so basically Jeremiah speaks these words again, telling them you're a warning destruction, warning captivity, all that. And the prophets come out and the priests come out and they hear him. In the house of the Lord. So he's in the temple. And he finishes talking and they say, you shall die. They want to kill him for stuff that he's been saying. And so they take hold of him and they say, why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord? Saying this house should be like shallow and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So they take, take hold of him. And say, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. But Jeremiah kind of pleads with them. He's like, listen, you haven't listened to me at all. And if you kill me, you're going to be killing an innocent man. After <laughs> some deliberation, the officials and the people and the priests and the prophets all come together. Like, all right, this guy doesn't deserve to die because he has certainly spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. It's really sad how not shocking any of this is. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. like They're constantly refusing to listen to him. And then they're, ver Jeremiah 20 sits and sits in like, he's definitely talking to us in the yeah. name of the Lord. Like, it's, it's stupid. So they arrest him, plead with him, and they acknowledge that he's speaking for God in the name of God. And... Not only that, they say, in the name of the Lord, our God, like, come on, God. Seriously, they claim to follow God, but they refuse to amend their ways in any way, shape, or form. Refuse to listen to him, refuse to repent, refuse to follow any ordinances, refuse to defect. But he's speaking well, yeah. in the name of God. How many times do we see people now saying, yeah, I follow God. I worship the Lord. I live for Jesus, but I'm not going to repent of anything because I don't have to do that. Why would I do that? Once saved, always saved, right? 
well, not even that. Just, I mean, hey, God forgives everything, no matter what. And so that means I can just do whatever I want. Club on Saturday, go to church on Saturday. Well, that's not how it works. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if you sin knowingly, there remains no more sacrifices for sin. Mm-hmm. Anyway, after the break, we'll discuss why these warnings and proclamations of judgment were declared. And there's a couple of things that might shock you. We'll be back right after this. So far, we've talked about some of the history and we've talked about everything leading up to the captivity of Judah. According to the prophets and the law of Moses, the Jews were carried into captivity because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. So the Jews had also broken the commandments of God in many ways, like idolatry, immorality, injustice, different things like that. They had turned away from God and had worshipped false gods. They had engaged in sexual immorality and all other forms of sin that you can imagine. And mainly they had oppressed the poor and the needy among them. But the specific commandments that I want to talk about today are the Shemitah and the year of Jubilee. So the Shemitah is a sabbatical year. It was a law that required the Jews to allow the land to rest every seventh year and to forgive all the debts owed by their fellow Jews. This was meant to be a time of renewal and restoration, both for the land and for the people. So Larry, if you'll read Leviticus 25, 1-7 for us. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in all your land and all its yield shall be for food. So the biblical text of Leviticus gives us some pretty specific instructions regarding how to observe this Shemitah. It tells us that during the Shemitah year that the land was to lie fallow and any produce that grows on its own is to be available for anyone to take. Farmers are not to plant, prune, or harvest their crops and are instructed to eat or to treat the land as if it were in a resting state. However, the Jews had ignored this law for multiple Shemitah years. They continued to oppress, continued to exploit, they were refusing to release debts. So similarly, the year of Jubilee was a time of release. It's a time of restoration. It's when all debts were canceled. It's when all the slaves were set free and all the land that had been sold was returned to the original owner. This was meant to be a time of great celebration and rejoicing as the people remembered God's faithfulness and provision. So it was to begin with the sounding of the shofar on the Day of Atonement. 
But Leviticus 25, 10 through 17 tells us, if you'll read, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor weep, reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vine. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. I love that the main crux of all this is verse 17. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. He's, God is swearing by himself that you shouldn't wrong each other and you should fear the Lord your God. It's just so interesting. Like in modern terms, like this whole idea, it just feels like. It feels like a giant bailout that puts everybody on relative evil, equal, noble footing. We're getting there. Which I know. I'm sorry. Give me like five minutes, like four or five minutes. All right. All right. So, in addition to the agricultural regulations of the Shemitah, the year of Jubilee also includes provisions for the forgiveness of debts and the release of slaves. So according to the biblical texts, debts were to be forgiven during this year, and anyone who has sold themselves into slavery was to be released. So Jeremiah records that the Jews began this process of the Shemitah and or the year of Jubilee. But in Jeremiah 34, 15, and 16, it says, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service, but your fathers did not listen to me or inclined their ears to me, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes, proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. So they did this in the temple, right? But then you turned around and profaned my name when you each took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. First of all, a little context. Zedekiah makes this covenant. He says, look, we're going to follow this Shemitah year. So the city is besieged, right? So in response, the Lord proclaims destruction on the people of Judah who disobeyed. He proclaims judgment on the priest who enacted the covenant, but then didn't follow through with it. All the religious elite, essentially, God says he would deliver into the hands of their enemies to be chopped up as they had passed through the calf to enact that covenant. There's some historical significance to that that I can't get to just yet. That's in a couple more series when we talk about Abraham. But they they enact this covenant between themselves, but they also enact it in the house of God. So God lifted that back from Judah when they obeyed. You may be wondering, well, why did they even do that if they hadn't fallen yet all these years? It could have been out of panic. It could have been out of a true act of obedience or piety. It could have been just cold-blooded self-interest. It, it reminds me, that kind of thought in 
modern terms, we have another story that we tell to talk about this. Like, why do people turn to God and then fall away? We talk about the parable of the sower and right. the four seeds. And they really yeah. aren't four seeds, it's four soils. And that there's certain soils that the word gets planted. The word was good. The seed was good. The response to the seed technically was good because all of the ground, the seed grew some, but three of the four, the seed grew and then was killed. Yeah. You know, and it's the same thing here. It doesn't matter why they did it, but the reality is, is that however, whatever the reason was, it was likely meant and honest in the moment that they did it, because if it wasn't, God wouldn't have accepted it. Yeah, I mean, God is was still satisfied either way. So, and what's yeah. what's interesting? What happens at this moment? I think it's Jeremiah thirty-seven or thirty-five. I can't remember what's happening at this moment. The Egyptians begin marching their army, and in response, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they decide, okay, we're going to leave the siege of Jerusalem, and we're going to turn our attention to the uh, uh, to the Egyptian. Mm -hmm. Well, they turn around. Like I said, so this is supposed to be all a reprieve, right? Because Judah has done the right thing. Then they turn around and undo all this. All the good that they had done, all the right things that they had done, they're like, oh, never mind. We're going to take you back as a slave. And basically, as soon as they felt safe again, basically, as soon as the Chaldeans are gone, you don't have to serve in an army or I don't have to worry about feeding you during a famine. As soon as that happened, they took them back. But... I just hear the Apostle Paul saying to us that God is not mocked. And I, I mean, yeah, you, you can't just make covenants with God and then God and then take it back. Like it's nothing. But it's like, how many, how many of us have been in that situation where we're like, God, you know, I'm, I'm in this bad spot. I need your help. I need help. I need whatever, you know, you, you need him to help us out. And then he helps us out. And then we just like, oh, well, Never mind, and we go right yeah. back to where we were right, right before that, you know. And you know, some sometimes we do it about little things. Some people have done it about much bigger things, and they end up in much, much, much worse spots before they learn their lesson. You know, but like this is such a human thing to do. You're you're in so much trouble and you cry out to God and then you see, oh, the trouble's gone. Doesn't matter. I wonder yeah. if I can go back to how I was and God won't notice. And it's like, no, no, he's, he's definitely going to notice. He's going to notice. Yeah. And here's the thing. People look at Jeremiah and they call him the weeping prophet. It's He hated having to prophesy this stuff against Judah. He loved Jerusalem. He loved Judah. Yeah. And I mean, that's why he was called the weeping prophet. Yeah. Because if you hear someone proclaiming judgment about people and they're enjoying it, they're that probably person not. is not proclaiming actual judgment what, of God. What did we say? I think we I said this in season one that you cannot pro properly prophesy judgment against the people that you have not properly weeped over. Yeah, I mean, look at Jonah. Jonah's a great example of that. Jonah hated Nineveh, and yet the only thing Jonah ever said to them that came true was the promise that if they repented, God would forgive them. Everything else Jonah wanted, everything else Jonah demanded didn't happen. Yeah. Well, eventually it did. But Well, I mean, eventually so, it did, yeah, but long yeah. after Jonah got to watch it. Yeah. He didn't get the satisfaction. But either way, we get on to Jeremiah 34 and verse 17. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty 
everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So in response, he's basically telling them, you don't want to let your fellow Jew free. You don't want to let your neighbor free. You don't want to do the right thing that I'm going to free my protection from you. You know, you're, he's, it's a play on words a little bit, but he's saying, you don't want to proclaim liberty for what you're supposed to be doing. I proclaim liberty to the sword. I proclaim liberty to destruction to come upon you. And King Zedekiah, it, Jeremiah prophesies, would be delivered into the hands of the Babylonian army. And they're withdrawn from the region. They're gone. So he's prophesying, these people are coming back. Don't worry. Because you chose to, to disobey. Why do these commandments seem to be the two main reasons for the final judgment of Judah? Like, there was a lot of stuff that played into it. But these two seem to be the kind of sticking point, almost. So from an economic perspective, by allowing the land to rest every seventh year, the Shemitah was to promote sustainability and equity in the agricultural market sector, whatever you want to call it. By allowing that land to rest every seventh year, farmers were able to prevent soil depletion. They were able to maintain long-term productivity of their fields. And the Shemitah and Year of Jubilee also helped uh, ensure that the land remained accessible to all members of society. And that was regardless of economic status. So they were forgiving these debts, releasing these slaves, and that prevented a concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few people. And it allowed for greater economic mobility and more economic opportunity, right? So from a social perspective, the Shemitah was intended to promote a sense of community and shared responsibility. It was reinforcing the importance of caring for each other. It, it provided an opportunity for that reflection and that spiritual growth because as individuals, they were encouraged to focus on their relationship with God and their their duty to their fellow men. But let's add on to that a little bit because Leviticus makes the argument that the land does not belong to the people at all. Leviticus makes the argument that the land actually belongs to the Lord and the people are but strangers and sojourners. So in ignoring these commandments, the people were taking possession of what was originally God. And here's the thing. God tells them that the land that they so desperately cling to will be burned, desolated, and given to an alien nation. So they're putting profit before their relationship with God. They're putting profit and wealth before just doing right by their fellow men. They're putting it before that, right? And both of these immediately remind me of the words of Jesus in Mark 12, 30-31, if you can read that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That is the crux of all this. All these sins, all these violations, obviously had led to the judgment and punishment. Because if you're following idols, worshiping false gods, and not obeying the commandments of the Lord, you're not serving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you're disobeying the Shemitah and your Jubilee, not only are you not serving him with everything you are, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not doing right by them. All the, the, the captivity of Babylon ultimately was supposed to be 
a time of discipline, a time of correction in order to bring the Jews back to God. Then we come to Jeremiah 52, which is a historical take on the complete fall of Jerusalem, if you'll read that. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around. And they went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. So because of your disobedience, you become a trophy. Because of your arrogance, you became a trophy, Zedekiah. To the pain, man. It all was fulfilled then, right? The the word of the Lord vindicated it. It confirmed the ministry of Jeremiah, all his warnings. And it all happened just like God said. I mean, it got so bad in Jerusalem that the women were resorting to eating their own children, right? Like it, it was terrible. And, you know, God says disaster is going to come from the north. He says that a strange nation would attack. He says that Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged. He said that there would be famine in the land. He said the whole land would be laid waste. He said nations and kingdoms would be torn down. He said that death would enter, enter into the city. He said that the enemy king would sit in the gates of Jerusalem. God said that the city would be burned with fire. God said that the people would be taken into exile multiple times. This isn't one this isn't just one chapter. This is chapter after chapter after chapter after verse of Jeremiah warning all this. He's warning of all this impending doom, and he warned that Judah might repent. He warned them, look, I'm warning you so that you will repent, not so that so that this is an absolute. I'm warning you so that you will repent. And when they did, God saw it and he relented. But when they turned back to their wicked ways, God brought that destruction on them. And here's the thing. Scholars argue that somewhere between fifteen to 30,000 people were taken into captivity. They were exiled from a land that was never theirs because it was God's, but they treated it as theirs. God had given them provision, blessings, descendants, and luxuries. They had walked in the blessings of God and took them all for granted. I would say they took them as entitlements, not because the Lord was their God, but because they thought it was all theirs. Yet among those who were led captive were four men, four men who would stand in the face of kings, idols, and death and declare that the Lord is God and he alone should be served. 
So despite all that's happening around us, despite all that is going on in our society, our culture, our economy, our social world, there are still people who God has appointed. There's still a, uh, there's still a, as Ezekiel called it, a remnant. Yeah. There's still a remnant of people. There are still men of integrity. So join us next week as we turn to the book of Daniel for encouragement and guidance on how we should not assimilate and how we should not convert to what this world desires us to be. We'll see you next week.